Welcome to How I Did It, where Coda's philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest in this episode is Dr. Andrew Cooper. Andrew's an investor and a serial entrepreneur. He's also the founder and CEO of Leapfrog Investments. Now, Leapfrog is a really interesting um, business. Former President Bill Clinton really likes Leapfrog, and Forbes has raised Leapfrog as one of the top five companies to change the world. Uh, and in a, a recent capital raise, Leapfrog uh, managed to raise $1 billion for one of its funds, and that's the largest equity fund by a dedicated impact investor ever. Andy uses what he calls a profit with purpose model to change the way that people invest and the way institutions invest, and also to help people across the world. And what does that look like? Well, Leapfrog owns nearly 30 impact businesses that reach 168 million people. So how do you how do you put something like that together and do it? Well, um, Andy will explain in this episode, and I hope you enjoy um, listening to Andy talk about that as much as I did. Welcome, Andy. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good, good. You've just had a swim and you're nice and relaxed, is that right? You've had your daily meditation. and Other than the jet lag, yes, feeling good. That's probably a, per- a semi-permanent state for you, though, isn't it, with the travel you do? Most of the time, yeah. Great. Well, welcome. Um, we'll kick things off for those that don't know, if you don't mind, just give us a, a brief overview of, of LeapFrog Investments. Just over 10 years ago, I had the idea of creating an investment company that would focus on profit with purpose. That is businesses that both generated outsized profit and actually served fundamental human needs like the need for healthcare or financial tools in emerging markets. And we announced at the launch in 2008 uh, with President Clinton that we would try to reach 25 million low income people through uh, our funds, we would try to raise $100 million and we would seek to generate top tier returns. And so now it's 10 years later uh, and I guess we've hit a lot of those targets. So with a couple of uh, colleagues here, but as a thing we're doing outside work, we've just launched um, a company that op- it's operating as a non-profit. We launched it ourselves on LinkedIn. You got President Clinton to do it. How did, how did you manage to do that? Well, firstly, I didn't know the guy. And I originally was a farm kid from uh, South Africa uh, and found my way via all sorts of routes eventually to this idea and this approach. And I knew from looking at extraordinary entrepreneurs and having started my own things that there was an opportunity of 4 billion people rising now in emerging markets, that the technology of mobile was coming and was going to change the world. Those 4 billion people could be reached at a hundredth of the cost. So the number of customers in the world had doubled and it was a hundredth of the cost to reach them. And I thought there was an exciting proposition and a will-changing proposition. And I essentially met the most junior person at the Clinton Global Initiative Mm. and talked my way up until I met the guy and I was on stage launching uh, the first fund with him. The funny thing is people think it was so easy because Clinton got behind us and you know the eBay founder Pura Midyar and George Soros and so on were early investors but actually the day we launched was the 22nd of September 2008 which is exactly a week after Lehman collapsed. 
So as we were going out with this exciting new thing focused on emerging markets, there were literally people opposite the Sheraton in New York carrying their boxes out of the buildings. Mm. And really the experience of that utterly forged us as a team because we had to have such belief and such conviction and such evidence for the possibility of what we could do. We had to be so thought through in terms of our approach in order to raise capital in that environment mm. well, you're that it really shaped us. You were forged in the fire, literally, right? Exactly. And we'll come back to uh, you know, what, what you learned, how you managed to do that, how you managed to summon that conviction and so on, and how you managed to work your way up from the most junior person in, in the Clinton organization. Because these are really interesting things in the context of how I did it. Right, mm. um, but just bring the story up to date. In the last week or so, um, you've gone well past this initial target of a hundred million dollars, and you, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So about uh, just over a week ago, we announced a new billion-dollar Australian-dollar fund that is actually our uh, third fund and fourth vehicle. Uh, Leapfrog now has over two billion. Uh, Australian dollars under management. We also now, our companies reach 168 million people of whom 136 million are low income. In other words, living on under $10 a day per person in the household, the World Bank definition, providing healthcare or financial tools to those folks. And I guess the funds have now been backed by many of the world's leading institutional investors, as well as the high net worth sort of people I mentioned. So Leapfrog has become much bigger in terms of its scale, financial performance and impact than we had imagined on that day. And there are plenty of lessons for the things we did wrong mm. to get there, of course, as well as some of the things we got right. Yeah, and again, I'm very interested in, in hearing about that. Um, before we get into that kind of thing, though, let's now you brought us up to date, let's just go back a bit to before all, all this happened. Uh, I've read that you, um, that you're, a, well, you obviously are a serial entrepreneur, but I've read that you had your first business, or you were you're dealing with your first clients when you were 13, is that right? <laughs> I uh, started investing in the stock market when I was 10, uh, basically taking old newspapers that my mother had and charting performance of stocks and trying to find patterns. And that worked. So when I was 13, I took on my first clients uh, and started generating pretty decent returns for those clients and became very excited by this idea of investment. The funny thing was, though, at the same time, my folks had sent me to the only unsegregated school under apartheid called Woodmead. Mm -hmm. And so I had a very intense experience there of the need for social justice and uh, efforts to change the world. Yeah. And if you really look back into my life, therefore, I had two early experiences, one of profit and one of purpose and went through various experiences thereafter, whatever it was with my studies or the, the organizations I started, to try to somehow put those things together. And Leapfrog eventually became the way mm. that the impact side and the business side really came together quite powerfully and fortunately for me. So you, you're sitting there drawing, char charting stock prices, you didn't have a cricket set or a rugby ball around. Like there's nothing around. <laughs> there's nothing around the bomb, obviously. 
Um, you don't need to answer that. Um, okay, so how formative do you think that was your parents' attitude at the time and their decision to put you into that environment, um, which sounds like a very deliberate one, and then your experience there uh, and you, and those those fir that first um, awareness, if you like, uh, of social justice, equity, and, and um, related issues. Well, my parents were both extremely values-driven people as well as being entrepreneurial. And I think I owe a huge amount of whatever fortunate results I've been able to achieve to their orientation. Mm. My father died just over two years ago and uh, he was extraordinary for really reflecting very hard on how values could be built into his company and then into advising other people how they could be built into their companies. So he eventually wrote a book called Ethics, The Leadership Edge, of which the subtitle was How Leaders Build a Strategy Using Values and Trust. So you can imagine this was a very significant influence on yeah. me. And similarly, my mother um, grew to eventually run a, a research arm of the independent newspapers in South Africa and was a researcher with enormous integrity who could be trusted by people to really look at the data and mm. not skew anything and really think about things in a very direct and clear-eyed way. Mm. And I think that those values have really driven me in terms of how to build a best-in-class investment business right. or any business for that matter. Yeah. Now, in that, so in that sense, my view is you're very privileged because you had parents like that who brought you up that way. But that's nurture. What about nature? Um, you know, do you subscribe to the view that an entrepreneur is, is born, not made? I don't. I believe that we have all sorts of experiences that make it possible for us to entrepreneurially believe and sometimes it's something that's just within and sometimes it's that we had a great mentor or a great exemplar in our family or nearby that made that belief possible and certainly for me i've been very inspired by others i've met who mm. are extraordinary entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs for that matter mm. and they've expanded my horizon of what i thought was possible there's a great definition of an entrepreneur, which is someone who works 18 hours a day so they don't have to get a job. <laughs> and sometimes your negative experiences can be equal prompts to deciding to go out on your own and make things happen yeah. rather than work in a context that someone else has established. Yeah, no, I, 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 but I think even broader than that, I agree with that, but broader than that, your negative experiences can be some of the most valuable um, experiences you have and useful experiences that you can possibly have uh, which then enable you to do things in the future differently or, or that you would never have even attempted to do. Well absolutely I'll give you a, a strong example of that is one of my own most serious failures which was in India in the 90s I was trying to help farmers adopt drip irrigation mm. because I thought that this would really improve yield for which there was a lot of evidence and that people who were relatively low income could lift their families out of poverty in two, three years if they adopted drip irrigation. And I kept walking around trying to persuade the farmers in the middle of the desert uh, in Rajasthan to do this. And eventually I realized that I was the foolish foreigner 
because any new business, no matter what evidence I had for them, had about a 5% chance of failure at least. And that one in 20 chance meant that their children would starve. Right. So I had completely misunderstood the appropriate risk architecture in their heads. And that tormented me. Uh, I remember coming in to on the railway train uh, on the tracks into Delhi one morning and seeing millions of people squatting and doing their ablutions on the morning mm. tracks and thinking not only that I, I had failed, but looking at this and thinking, what can you ever do to have a big enough impact on these challenges of poverty? And that stuck with me for so many years, that failure. Mm. And eventually it partly led to LeapFrog because I realized that what low-income people need is quality financial tools like insurance that provide safety nets mm. and springboards for them to take worthwhile risks. Mm. And in fact, that they would buy those tools, <laughs> those financial services, because that would enable them to rise. Mm. So rather than remonstrating at them about what would be good for them, providing the safety nets and springboards where you treat them as an agent, as someone who will buy that valuable source of security, of risk transfer, mm. uh, became a central precept of how we thought about LeapFrog, that in the end, those were the emerging consumers that you had to serve. And obviously, that I started LeapFrog a decade after that negative mm. experience, but had I not had it, I'm not sure I could ever have done LeapFrog. No, and you carried it with you, right? So obviously, the, the, the carrying with you of that experience, the memory of it, the lesson from it, um, was important and time was important. But in that intervening time, what else happened that spurred you um, to go on? And what else did you learn that enabled you to do it effectively when you did then go on and set up um, LeapFrog? And I say that with one other thing in mind, Andy, and that is that a lot of people would have stopped 10 years before LeapFrog at that point when they were rolling into Delhi on the train and said, mm this is not for me, I can't do it, I didn't do it, I failed, I don't wanna be um, potentially harmful to people. There'd be a mm. whole host of reasons that may have stopped people in their tracks, no pun intended with that chain analogy, but um, yeah, just explain a little bit more about what, what, what went on. Well, first of all, I remained very determined because of my early experience to make a difference. And I tried in multiple sectors so I was eventually uh, a fellow at Cambridge University. I uh, worked uh, in non-profit, mm. I worked in for-profit, I tried working with the UN system a little bit, and essentially I was very focused on how to achieve the outcome. And what brought me to ultimately build a, a fairly decent-sized business was the idea that given the scale of the problems out there for billion low-income people, it is very hard to have an impact only with philanthropy. Philanthropy yeah. is very important and it addresses certain absolutely key needs and strategic philanthropy is especially important. Mm. But if you look at four billion people, that challenge of bringing them to prosperity and security is only going to be achieved by opening the gates of the capital markets where trillions of dollars can flow through 
to enabling those people. And one of the best uses of philanthropy, by the way, and the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation uh, will tell you this, and Rockefeller and Ford are both investors in our, our new fund, uh, is to help those gates to open mm. because the multiples are just vastly larger and you can really sustainably serve with business very, very large numbers of people. So, so that, that's, that's an entree. Start, it's starting to make the case for um, profit with purpose and the idea that you can, through business, um, uh, assist a large number of people in a sustainable way, a hand up, not a handout, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a lot of people aren't sold on that. You're working with enlightened philanthropists, you're working with enlightened um, investors, and I, for one, get what you're saying, but a lot of people will struggle with the concept or they'll doubt the, um, the very idea. What do you say to those people? I would just say that their view of being skeptical would probably have been legitimate 10 years ago, was increasingly shaky five years ago, and is false now. And why? Essentially, there is a lot of evidence, that, and it's been verified by multiple studies, by multiple organizations, that you can achieve outsized returns by pursuing impactful forms of investment in business. And there are very specific reasons for that. First, a purpose-driven business attracts better talent and retains talent better. Second, you have much more support from regulators. Third, governance has proved to be a very significant determinant of returns because it removes a great deal of risk and it improves your upside. And the focus on governance that impact has brought is very central. And there are many others, but I would just mention one fourth one that has proved central behind the likes of Google and Alibaba and other great success stories like Apple and Amazon, which is this ultimate focus on the customer. So what impact does is it says, let's look in the end at that customer because where profit meets purpose is at the customer. Every person in need who is served with an essential service is a low-income people getting some kind of springboard or safety net they need. Mm. And at the same time, they're part of the revenue line. So if you start serving millions and millions of them with good governance in a way that is uh, respects them and gets them to be sticky customers who really stay with you and come back mm. and refer in their friends, you can really create a business that has much lower marketing cost, much lower risk, and that can be extremely high growth. And the simple evidence from the leapfrog story is that on average, our companies across the entire 10 years, across 26 companies, our companies grow at almost 40% a year on average. Mm. Now, if you can find that in the developed world, you're gonna be extremely happy. If you can find that in the emerging world, you're gonna be very happy. But fundamentally, that kind of growth is not possible without an ultimate customer orientation mm -hmm. that Profit With Purpose brings to you. And, and this must be a question you've been asked many times. How do, you, um, how do you get comfortable yourself when you think, particularly around the governance piece, that there is, uh, and don't, don't be offended if you think it's a silly question. I think it's one I've got to ask because I think there'll be people out there who would want to ask this question. How do you ensure that you are actually bettering lives by serving customers who are on your revenue line. You can see that part of the business in a traditional sense works very well. How do you make sure um, that you are bettering lives through that process and through that model? So again, I think 10 years ago, a level of skepticism about what are the metrics that you're using would have been appropriate. 
in the past few years, that too has fallen away quite significantly because there are a set of principles that the IFC World Bank co-designed and launched with LeapFrog and some others yeah. that establish what are the minimum standards required for impact investing. There are measurement frameworks, including our proprietary measurement framework, LeapFrogs, mm. that really look at are the products serving these folks quality, affordable, and relevant. And I don't just mean this in a qualitative sense. I mean this in a highly technical, quantifiable sense. So mm. for example, when we invest in insurance, we look at things like renewal ratios and claims ratios. Renewal ratios, do people come back to buy your product? If they don't, you're probably not giving them much value. Claims ratios, there are internationally accepted standards for how much of the pool that the insurer collects they have to distribute back to the customers when the customers make claims. These are things that any business, any good business, should be tracking from both a financial and a social perspective and things that you can really incentivize chief executives and teams around that speak to both profit and purpose. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about purpose is it brings a crisp focus to that that sometimes of course has been sorely lacking in some of the Australian institutions uh, appearing before the Royal Commission and some other institutions around the world that wouldn't have run into these problems mm. that they've run into had they taken this purpose lens and you can actually see the impact on performance and on profits. Mm. Great, terrific. Well, let's talk a bit more about how all this happened, right? Because you're talking about it today, but it wasn't always there and you had to make it happen. I'm, I'm sure that you'd be um, prepared to acknowledge that you've been helped and mentored and, and educated along the way. But at the end of the day, you've done it. So how did you do it? Let's, let's start to open up that conversation. Uh, do you have a take on it or do you want me to prompt you with a, with a couple of other leading questions? Well, the, the first thing is I, I don't think we've done it in the sense of we've reached the destination. I think it, it really is a journey. And one of the things I'm struck by over the decade plus of LeapFrog now is how many mistakes we made, how just as you think you've reached the top of the mountain, there's either another mountain to climb or another stumble that you have. Yeah. So part of the story fundamentally is a, a resilient optimism that has proved very important in getting where we're going and a, an openness to learning and changing in sometimes quite fundamental ways in order to grow with the business. Mm. If you have a business that has been as high growth as LeapFrog, starting out at zero and at over two billion Australian managed now in, in 10 years, you have to grow a lot as a person. The, the 32 year old that I was when I started uh, LeapFrog would not be able to manage the business mm. that, that we have today. And it's not that every time I realized what clever ways I needed to evolve, I ran into brick walls, I fell down, I stood up and I learned how to climb over the wall. So I, I really want to stress that there's no perfect moment and there's no perfect person. And I've done many things wrong. Uh, I've tried to, to learn from them and I'll carry on doing things wrong in the future and just try to learn from them faster and better and quicker. This resilient optimism sounds good. I think I'll have, have a bit of that myself. Um, again, in the spirit of you know how I did it, um, you've, you've 
you know, you've kind of credited that, but how do you build that? You know, there'll be people again, I'm, I'm in my mind thinking would say, sounds great, but how do you become so resilient and optimistic in the face of so many challenges or even failures? Mm. Um, shed any light on how you've built that yourself? Or how do you build it, more importantly, for other people? So the first sentence I wrote on LeapFrog's website all those days ago in a Starbucks was, LeapFrog is an ex extraordinary group of people motivated by a magnetic idea, profit with purpose. The first thing is having a, a concept that you feel is compelling. And as Gandhi said, if you are the bearer of a truth, you can bring down empires. So really aligning your own passions around that truth mm. and being the bearer of that. And when I've met people all through these years, from Clinton through to today, they can see that there is a deep alignment that goes all the way down in me and the team yeah. with these values and with this vision. I think the second thing there is excellence of the team. So when I started, the people who I started with were former chief executives or left their jobs as chief executives or the leading thinkers in their space to rally around this. And that excellence is important, but also that they're truly good people. I mean, you're mm. going to walk along the edge of a cliff with these people mm. repeatedly, and you'd better feel that they can throw their arms around you at the hard moments and walk along with you and you feel safe in their presence. Mm rather than that it's just convenient for them to support you now, but when you're on the yeah. edge of the cliff, they don't want to take any risk themselves. So for me, what, what we at LeapFrog call the mensch test, is this a truly good person, yeah. actually comes prior to any sort of skills or capabilities or marketing or uh, perception assessment, yeah. because it will be in those moments when resilience is required that those people are tested and that you will either stand together and forge an ever stronger union mm. and business mm. or fail. So I, I would put those two ideas, the fundamental truth that you're pursuing and the fundamental goodness of the people who you're forming as a team around that truth as the essence of success at scale. So a, lo a lot of the people, again, listening to this uh would be in, engaged in pursuits that may be charitable, non-profit, social enterprise type pursuits. All of them, I, I can't imagine any of them would say that they wouldn't want to build an organization or a movement um, that didn't basically follow what you've just said and that, that they would want that great idea, conviction in it, and then attract good people. But thinking about the people, again, how did you go out and literally, how did you find really, really good people beyond the, the fact that you were carrying this truth. How did you find good people and how did you determine their goodness and their caliber and then convince them to get on board? So remember, this was started amid the global financial crisis. and Which would what, have made it even harder, right? I mean, which if you made got it, it, even it would have been a crazy idea almost exactly. back then. And so what I certainly didn't do is just send out a whole lot of advertising and see who wrote. I went to people I trusted and really sat down with them and tried to involve them in the narrative and the vision and saw who they'd recommend to potentially join the team. I also looked back on my own life and the people who I'd connected with who I'd really thought were 
either expert or exceptional in their acumen mm. and thought about which of those people I could involve. Then I took a very clear decision, which was that I was not going to earn more than a number of the people, the early people, because I wanted it to feel like a band of brothers and sisters yeah. who were all in it together. Uh, and I could see that, let's say I started a number of years before folks, of course, the some kind of long-term ownership or carry or whatever in a private equity fund might be larger for the people that started early and took mm. early risk. But fundamentally, having very big disjuncts in earnings mm. between different folks within the, the leadership of the firm can be quite pernicious and destructive. Mm. I also made sure that they were highly complementary to me. So people too often hire in their own image. And if you look at what really works for great companies, in my view, it's when there are highly complementary approaches. Mm. So one person is a bit more skeptical and one's a bit more optimistic. One person might come out of a more conventional financial services background. One might come, might come out of a nonprofit or a uh, academic environment and one might come out of something quite different within the business world with a very entrepreneurial or startup experience and trying to put those things together in a meshed way mm -hmm. has a lot of value and bring people from different contexts. We have something like 25 nationalities on the leapfrog team now and whether I'm meeting with a Kenyan, a Nigerian, an Indonesian, an Indian, a South African, an Australian uh, and I'm discussing something the fact that there are multiple lenses on something and that when you come out aligned around a decision from so many perspectives, you can have a much higher level of confidence yeah. in that decision. It's yeah. not just confirmation bias is a very big factor in the success of a company. So people talk about diversity as if it's this very noble thing that you have to pursue for its own sake. And that's true. But it's also something that is entirely instrumentally important yeah. in terms of building, I believe, in the contemporary world, a really successful company, especially one that has to go across many, many different markets. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? It's that true diversity of thought, perspective, experience, diversity in terms of emotional reactions and outlooks, and uh, life lived, lived experiences that people bring to the table. Um, you, you're obviously an advocate that that's hugely important. So Andy, um, tell me about the biggest challenge. What was the hardest part of this journey what, what was the hardest bit where you really struggled and you had to do your best work to, to keep things going? I would just say beware of the success moments as much as the challenging moments. So there was a point where Leapfrog was growing so fast and we just started adding people and each person was great in their own right. Mm. But collectively we started having being too many people running around with good to do, mm. nice to do objectives, and without as clear role definitions mm. as was needed. And a few years back, we really recalibrated and said, let's understand what are the absolutely key drivers of our business success. And let's make sure that every person has a very defined role in moving those levers to get great returns for investors and massive impact for emerging consumers. Mm. And 
that process, of course, was painful. And we even lost a few people along the way who we didn't want to lose. Uh, and we had a few people where there just weren't roles for them as good as they were that we parted ways with. Mm. And I found that very hard because I feel very connected to the team. And I really learned from that experience that there's such a thing as having individually rational hires but not collectively rational approaches. Right. And now when I look at us, it's a bit like that well-honed sports team. You know, if you look at Tottenham and Liverpool now in the, <laughs> in, the, in the Champions League, it's not that there's as much room anymore for, that in, for the individual flashes of genius. But what there really is, is a sports team that has worked to optimize its mm. performance with very clear roles that perpetually improves and learns and understands what each other can bring mm. and therefore gets to a level of excellence that's far beyond any one person's flashes of brilliance. Mm. doesn't mean you can't have the flashes of brilliance, but it does mean that your focus has to be on what are the really essential roles in the team and how do we work together magnificently and get better and better iteratively, not in giant leaps, mm. but iteratively day by day so that we are the best performing investment house or business out there. Hmm. And you're right, looking at Liverpool and Tottenham, they've done well, not quite as well as Manchester United's <laughs> treble winning team of 1999, but that's a different podcast. Um, Andy, you've talked quite a lot about people, people dynamics, the, the composition of a team, but we've talked about people. You've also talked about the idea, or as you call it, the truth, the, the truth of the idea perhaps. and. The bit then in the middle for me is strategy, but how do you approach it? How have you approached it with LeapFrog? I think the first thing is don't have an automatic sense of inadequacy about where you're coming from. You don't need a Harvard MBA to be great at strategy. And in fact, I have zero training in any such thing. I studied philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy mm. and a master's in history. Uh, and what those things taught me is to try to ask challenging questions, mm. try and get to the root of things, don't just accept assumptions, and try and understand context and people very importantly. Mm. And as I evolved the strategy of LeapFrog, I really focused not actually on who was already out there and positioning myself against them, but fundamentally, what was the opportunity out there, which was the four billion consumers rising mm. and technology having reduced the cost of reaching them? And who was best at seizing that opportunity? And that included not just the LeapFrog team, but the companies we backed. And so not who, not what, who? Who. The great entrepreneurs iterate. Mm. How did you go about making sure that you... That you your initial approach was as, um, as right, inverted mm. commas, as it could be. Mm. Well, we didn't sit in a room and hypothesize. So you didn't have we a, a looked, day out and, and sit <laughs> in a room. We did plenty of those days out, out, but what we were talking about in those days out were actual ventures and efforts out in the world. Right. What was working in the world? What approaches were actually getting mm. strong financial results? as well as strong impact. Mm. And what did we need to build that incorporated those insights? Right, and that wasn't already there. And that wasn't already there. 
of course what would have utterly failed would have been to go out and say what competition is there out there because there was no such thing as impact investing when I started Leapfrog. Yeah. There was no real concept of profit with purpose, the idea that you could get outsized returns and outsized mm. impact. And had I looked at what was out there, I would have created, uh, as, as Henry Ford said, I would have created a, 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 a better horse and carriage yeah. <laughs> rather than a better car. Yeah. And so I think the, the central thing is to go out there, find examples in the world. And this is part of what philosophy mm. taught me. You can come from abstraction and it's very valuable, mm -hmm. but actually looking at uh, what, is, what is the essence, what are the solutions that are being derived in multiple contexts and then weaving that together in your own beautiful fabric or filter mm, mm. Uh, is the important way to go and then being very focused on what your underlying proposition is mm -hmm. so well, there were certainly moments where we were presented with opportunities that were financially very rewarding and destructive to consumers and we walked away from those. Mm -hmm. And there were others where it was very hard to walk away because there were businesses that did very noble things, mm -hmm. but they weren't sustainable or scalable. And the reason we've been able to reach over 150 million people now and generate interest from you know, many of these leading institutional investors is that we didn't compromise on that fundamental proposition. So just because you're learning doesn't mean your bedrock is going away. Yeah. It means you're altering the how not the why or the what. I, of course, don't want to claim that these questions of where to play and how to win aren't absolutely central. And our 26 companies have to deal with this every day and LeapFrog mm. has to deal with this every day. And even if you look at the impact investing space, when you've had some of the world's biggest companies from BlackRock uh, through to others like Partners Group uh, enter the space, you always have to think about how you are positioned mm. and what you are distinctively able to deliver that others can't. What I would stress though is that that doesn't start by thinking in abstraction about how you can look better to everybody. <laughs> it really starts with saying what are we trying to do that we're uniquely well positioned to do and what capabilities, do? what muscles do we need to build to be the super athlete in that defined area? And if I look at LeapFrog, we didn't say, we're gonna go out and invest in every company in every area with this wonderful idea. We said, look, we are going to do investment in these eight countries that contain two billion consumers, admittedly, but eight countries, not 150, mm in financial services with a special focus on insurance, pensions, and savings, and we're gonna build the best team in the world at that. Then we progressed into credit and payments and remittances and other areas of financial services. And only once we owned major health insurers did we move into healthcare, and even then we focused on consumer-focused healthcare because we had a competitive advantage yeah. there. So we really have seen the value of defining your focus in a laser-like way, making sure you are a magnificent specialist rather than a supermarket for everybody, mm. and trying to then build the capabilities that create the high walls and the deep moats. And as investors have evolved actually over the past 
decade, as well as donors, by the way, in the nonprofit space, mm. people have come to see that those distinctive capabilities are where you should focus. So we've seen a massive move in the statistics, and I'm on the board of the Emerging Markets Private Equity Association that produces a lot of research. We've seen a massive move in the statistics away from generalist funds towards specialist funds mm -hmm. that have distinctive capability. We've seen a massive move away from global funds towards regional funds mm. and in, uh, investment flowing into those funds because folks really know their markets and right. are from those markets. So I think this applies also in Australia or in New South Wales or in your local community. There are many, many things you could take on and people sometimes think they just have to battle everything at once. And having the laser-like focus where you have the ability to break through is really critical and it mm. actually enables you to break through subsequently in other areas much faster rather than just take on everything at once. Right, terrific, I, I, I like it. Um, you've been kind enough to be honest around some of the things that haven't worked and what you've learned along the way. If you could go back to the 32-year-old Andy Cooper and, and um, you know, give him a few tips, what, what would you tell him to do differently? I guess I would tell myself to worry a little less <laughs> uh, about this, the, the elements that prove to be noise and bumps. I tend to be good at big picture, but I think when I was younger, I probably exaggerated the size of each bump. Right and didn't see it as an inevitable part of building a okay. substantial organization. Now, when there's a bump, I look on it with a little bit of worry, but mostly with a kind of wry amusement <laughs> that allows me to think, what is the lesson here? What did I do wrong or right? How can we evolve? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And so I think I would tell my, my younger se self to be less hard on myself, less concerned with errors made, and more to embrace them. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, notion in Jungian psychology of embracing your shadow. And I think for building organizations, uh, a big part of the story is embracing your shadow. Mm. And when you really are able to look very hard at that dark side, and then change in light of that and grow in light of that. You are able to build, whether it's a person in yourself or an organization or a company that is anti-fragile, that is high growth, and that fundamentally can change the world. Mm. That's fantastic. I think you, your Jungian story um, that's a, gives, offers a profound insight into um, how you've been able to do what you've done so far and it's equally clear in my mind that this is the latest iteration of Andy Cooper and LeapFrog and what you're going to do. So congratulations on everything you've achieved so far and I look forward maybe we can come back and have another chat in a few years to the things you're going to go on to do um, because this is the latest iteration and there's clearly more to come. So good luck for that and once again thanks very much Andy, all the best. Well it's been a, an absolute pleasure and of course what 
Coda and you are doing to unfold the social investment and the philanthropic space here in Australia and beyond is incredibly important. It's a moment in history where money and meaning are coming together, where people are wanting to act with their values in their investment portfolios, in their daily activities, in the organizations they affiliate with, and in the purchases they make. So I think those who provide a framework for all of us to approach that money with meaning moment are doing a, a great deed in the world. And it's gonna take uh, a lot of work to get the right frames into place. But again, we're, we're learning and we're already much further along than we once were. Yeah, well, terrific. I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, people listening to you today, uh, amongst those people will be people you've inspired to go and, and do their bit uh, and scaffold that whole future that we hope uh, will come to pass. So thank you very much once again, Andy, all the best. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.